What's up? So we're recording. Um, first of all, okay, it cool. is a, a pleasant surprise to see um, a Jewish hippie in 2020 with uh, that, that lovely outfit. <laughs> oh, that there you are had. a lot of us. There are <laughs> yeah. a lot of us, man. There are a lot of us. Yeah, 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 for sure. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how's it going with the Zoom classes and all, considering that you are heading the best method acting studio in Mumbai and arguably India? And all right. Is it a pain in the ass? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for the compliment. That's, uh, that's something that I um, will always be awkwardly uh, appreciative of uh, and um, nervous about because, uh, you know, I got to keep at it and make sure that we uh, keep the quality up. And I'm really lucky to have such a great group of A, uh, faculty around me, B, support staff, and C, students, man. You know, I mean, um, the quality of our work is, is only as good as our students. And, you know, the fact that our students put in um, such a, great effort is it speaks to their dedication so you know really hats off to everyone uh but thank you um for for the compliment as far as is it easy is it hard the zoom classes are a challenge they are totally a challenge i think that's because um everyone's trying to find the rhythm of how to educate online you know what does that mean delivering the material online and also acting is very much a team sport it's very much a physical sport and it's very much you got to be together to do it, um, you know, and finding um, the right balance of theory and practical is challenging enough in the studio. But now that we're on the Zoom platform, it's a little bit more difficult. I think over the last six weeks, uh, myself and my colleagues through, you know, we've been meeting every week um, in Zoom sessions uh, to discuss our program. And I think we found a decent balance. I don't want to say we've nailed it because, you know, in six weeks, you're not going to nail anything. But um, you know, I think we've definitely found a really good balance that the students are responding to. And, um, you know, it's just onwards and upwards from here, but it's definitely not without challenges. It's fraught with challenges. Uh, but there are also some really big positives with the Zoom platform. One of them is, um, you know, as you know, you can share your screen, you can cut yeah. away to videos, you can show uh, slides right there on the screen of your participants. And that's fantastic because that means that you, the visual aid side of the work it's so much more accessible, and I've really enjoyed that a lot, particularly with um, my acting and my film theory and screenwriting classes. So I think it's just about reimagining what you're teaching. The content remains the same, but it's just how do you deliver it, and how does it become deliverable, and how does it become worthwhile to the student? Those are the big question marks, and everybody, I think, across the world, regardless of topic, is, is trying to find that balance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think Zoom is going to probably become one of the best companies to invest in this year because of just how, I mean, it, it's completely fucked Skype up. I don't, I don't see any classes mm-hmm. happening on Skype. It's all on Zoom. Um, and mm-hmm. people are adapting everywhere, even uh, mm-hmm. places where they were not technology centric. I'm seeing um, mm-hmm. schools, government schools teaching classes on Zoom, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. that's as far as the studio. One thing that I'm fascinated by about you is that you spent your life on about three or four continents um, and mm. there was a very successful, uh, sorry, there was, there, was a, there was a significant time in your life in, in France, right? And, and I couldn't help mm-hmm. but make the association to Ernest Hemingway and the whole Scott, oh, God. That, that gang, right? Because uh, I know he's, um, yeah. uh, Hemingway is one of your favorite writers, right? So, he's very uh, much my favorite writer. Not yeah, one of them. He is my favorite writer. Okay. Let's start from the yeah. start. Um, you're a Jewish kid growing up in New York. Where did you grow up? Mm. I grew up in the suburbs of New York in a place called Rockland County, um, of the yeah. major outlying areas of the New York City area. Uh, Rockland is the smallest, uh, but actually quite close to the city. Uh, we're lesser known, actually, funnily enough, because we don't have... Uh, the Metro North or the New Jersey transit rail system that comes to us directly. So it's remained, it's a really interesting uh, place to grow up because you're about 20, 25 minutes from the city, but at the same time, so you know where like if you live in Nassau County, Long Island, you're about an hour, hour and a half from downtown Manhattan, where if you grow up in Rockland, you're 25 minutes from downtown Manhattan. But we are much less urban because of that lack of connectivity to the city. So there's a real kind of, not a country vibe, because I mean, it's still Metro New York, but there's a little bit more green grass and rolling hills vibe, which was lovely. Um, and it was a great place to grow up. But, you know, it was pretty typical suburbia. Uh, and there were times as a high school kid that I definitely felt like I was living in Edward Scissorhands uh, town where everybody looked the same and all the houses were painted similar pastel yeah. colors. Uh, and I struggled with that. I did because, you know, as somebody who 
just innately was always attracted to culture and grit and I guess the stuff that makes up real life. Not that suburban life is not real, but it has that American plastic veneer on it. Uh, the minute I got the chance to run away from it, I sprinted. So um, like yourself, I wound up at Boston University for four years. And walking in BU, I knew that I wanted to study film. That was obvious to me. I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker. But I actually, incidentally, I actually always had a real interest in history and was quite good at it, surprisingly, because I was terrible at everything else in school. But because of some uh, really good teachers at the high school level and then at the university level, I was able to actually get two degrees. I was able to get a bachelor's in history and a bachelor's in film at the same time. And um, it was just this wonderful you know, um, confluence of, of studies and ideas and thoughts and emotions that came together that sort of pushed me. In a- like at that time, um, was it, oh. it, it wasn't as prestigious as it is today. I know for a fact that uh, people used to shit on BU, especially from Harvard and MIT. It's like the rich kids. School, for sure. Right? For sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would, you know, my, uh, my nephew was just applying to university. He's gone into Penn State, actually. God bless Fantastic. him. Uh, and my, uh, my, my cousin was telling me, his dad was telling me, he's like, yeah, BU is really tough. And like, wait, he was talking. And my cousin's a really smart, fat chap. And he's telling yeah. me, and I was like, shit, I would have never gotten in today. Um, but, you know, look, BU back then, Boston University, I remember very vividly when I went to uh, an interview to get into the university. And it wasn't really an interview. It was just kind of a chat Wait, so, with a student. Oh, so it's like you were doing one of those orientation programs that only people... Kind of, like a pre-thing. Like, it was just yeah. like, I hadn't been accepted yet, but I just wanted to speak to a student. So yeah. I spoke with a student. I remember he told me, like, he was very mixed bag on what he thought of the university. He was really honest about it. Mm. And I remember him saying that he, like, really loved the university. But yeah. he didn't really like a lot of other things like the city of Boston, things like that. And I couldn't really, you know, and as, as, as a sort of a high school senior, I thought, fuck, like, aren't you supposed to love everything? Yeah. Uh, and funnily enough, when I got there, I realized what he meant, which was the university was incredible. I mean, you have some of the smartest minds, some of the most interesting uh, professors, people I've ever met. Yeah. Coupled with, you have unbelievable resources, almost limitless resources, but yeah, the city, the college life was a little underwhelming, um, unless, of course, you're, like, really into hockey, uh, which I do. I like hockey, but I'm not, like, super into it. But, um, you know, I found a really good group of friends. We were all misfits, which is my gang, you know, and um, yeah. we just wound up having a really good time and becoming very dear friends, lifelong friends. I'm still very much in touch with those guys. And um, I, I'm grateful to the university because particularly my professors, there are a few of them whose names I could tell you right now and whose faces I could see, they changed my life. They, you know, and that's what a university education is all about, isn't it? It's just yeah. elevating your horizons. So it was an amazing experience. And as I got through my studies, you know, it started to, I started to face that typical sort of American filmmaker, wannabe filmmaker choice, which was, especially as a New Yorker, was I have to leave Boston because there ain't no filmmaking here. And my two choices are, and it was this, this is the late 90s, early 1000s, my choices if were... You, if you are in Boston, you would have to inevitably cast Mark Wahlberg or Matt Dillon, any of those guys. Exactly, right? And I mean, you know, and I don't, I don't know Boston well enough. I don't, I mean, New York's home, you know, Boston. I mean, it's the Red Sox. It's quaint. It's fine. I like clam <laughs> chowder, but that's where it ends. Right. Um, you know, uh, so I started to think about, like, what were my options, right? And my options were LA and my options were New York. And LA just felt undoable. I just, I wasn't into it. I just had that, maybe it was that Woody Allen thing. I, I don't know. Um, but I just, I didn't want to be in LA. Um, the biggest thing, funnily enough, that drove me crazy about LA was the car thing. I'm not a car guy. I, I never owned yeah. a car. It's a very New Yorker thing. I never, I never owned a car. So I didn't want to like be a guy driving around LA. And it's just the urban suburban sprawl that was LA didn't interest me. Um, and then uh, New York, it was home. And I thought, gosh, you know, I didn't go out and get this super expensive, fancy education just to wind up back on my parents, you know, house or, you know, so I got it in my head somehow to go to France. I just was like, fuck it. I want to move to France. Um, I had no real reason, absolutely no plan whatsoever. It's on a whim. whim. Yeah, it was really, it was really kind of, well, it was a whim that became a 10 year jaunt. Um, You know, I loved French cinema. Uh, yeah. especially that of the new wave from the early 60s. And I just wanted to understand that cinematic language and I wanted to speak that spoken language. I wanted to learn French. Um, 
And funnily enough, the very first day I wound up in France, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I um, got off the airplane at Orly Airport and I was walking through the airport and I thought to myself, I want to spend the rest of my life here. I, literally right then and there, I just, it hit me. And um, I know, I hope that, that, you know, one day after this wonderful time here in India starts to change, um, I'm going to go home to France. France became my home. I spent a, a decade of my 20s there. And, and that's a very, very special time in your life. So, yeah, that's that's sort of how it happened. It was just kind of a, a whim that became a decade. Yeah. So um, in terms of, uh, I think one thing that is very fascinating about people who start to emigrate from their home countries is is how they form communities around themselves, how they, how they make mm-hmm. friends, uh, how mm-hmm. they sort of, sort of extrapolate their own interests in, in the physical bodies of their friends. And then they all sort of come together in a collective effort to make some sort of art, uh, Mm -hmm. friendship, all of those things. Right. Uh, so you Mm -hmm. landed up in France, you almost knew no one. How did you go about uh, meeting people? Were you like one of those, uh, romantics where you would go to all the places your favorite writers had gone to that sort of thing? Or did you just, how did it all happen? In a bar. That's the way it all started in a bar, uh, you know, very, I guess that's even more Hemingway than going to his favorite jaunts uh, or haunts rather. Um, Yeah, man, I got a job in a bar called Le Violon Dang, which means the crazy violin in French. It's an American bar on uh, Le Rue Montagne de saint jean uh, which is in the fifth arrondissement, just in the shadow of the Pantheon. Um, One of the first English speaking American themed bars in the city in a very, very old part of town. And um, I walked in, asked for a job. They were like, when can you start? I said, tomorrow. And I got the job. And I was bartending. I had some waiting experience in the States. And uh, I guess they were, you know, the the other people working there were Irish and Swedish. uh, But they didn't have any real red-blooded Americans. And they were like, yeah, man, come on, you're on. So I got this job, which was a Friday-Saturday gig, where I would work. My job would start at 12 midnight. We get in at 12 midnight uh, because I think it was um, the bar would run from about 8 p.m. to 12 on the ground floor. But because it was on a hill in uh, the fifth arrondissement, it had a basement. All those, all, if you've ever been to Paris, as you go up the hill from the Seine in the fifth, um, those hills actually have basements in them, which is where the cargo ships that used to come into Paris off the Seine would send the wine and the meat and they would go into the cellars to keep them fresh. Wait, well, so since you're turned saying, all you're that, that, uh, Paris is a city on a hill and all of those streets have basements. I'm, I'm not, I'm not following. Not, not all of them. No, no, no. This particular part of the city in the fifth arrondissement, right off the mm-hmm. Seine on the left bank, there's a part of it that has a hill that goes up towards the Pantheon, right? Okay. Up towards the Sorbonne. And it, all of those buildings built on that hill will have these very deep basements. Not all of them, of course, but many of them, especially the older buildings will have these very deep basements because they used to be used by the, um, you know, the commercial, companies that would receive the fish and the cheese and the wine from different parts of the country. And they would put those goods in the basements to keep them fresh. Now, obviously they don't do that anymore, not for probably the last 50, 60, 70 years. So all those basements have been converted into a variety of things. Well, at the Violandang, the basement had been converted into a bar, but it was open from 12 to five and what would happen one to five. So we would open at rather 1230 to five. And what would happen was all the bars in the fifth arrondissement would shut and all the anglophone bars which there were many of irish bars english bars american bars they'd all dump there because they'd shut it at two o'clock or one yeah. o'clock depending upon their license they'd all converge on the violandang and everyone would wind up in this basement so it was this every weekend it was this huge party of drunken anglophones and francophones and that's where my journey of meeting people speaking french uh started funnily enough actually to this day the first thing i learned how to do in french was count because i needed to count the money right um so i can count really well in french and funnily enough to this day when i want to concentrate on counting something albeit money or you know chopsticks i count in french i count in french because my mind concentrates faster in french uh, because I used to spend a lot of time counting French francs. So it would be, you know, under trois, quatre, cinq, six, sept, huit, neuf, dix, you know, and blah. Um, and the first words in French that I really spoke fluently 
were the numbers. Uh, and then, you know, obviously it all grew out from there. So yeah, that was my first sort of jaunt and experience in the city. Wow. Um, I am uh, surprised by this, just this ability for people to change languages when they think um, it's, it's, it's more universal than I thought it is because um, I know for a fact that when I'm trying to really process um, and put my, freeze my thinking down onto paper, it's always in English. And the reason for that is um, mm. my, my Hindi self, right, is, is more uh, flamboyant, uh, more rustic, that sort of thing. Whereas English, it's, it's, it's based on the books that I read and all those the people that I talk to. So what I'm really trying to like, just, just like understand this still, whatever is happening in the moment, it's, that's very interesting. Uh, they do that in French. Mm. Um, now, in terms of bartending, I've had experiences mm. of bartending myself uh, in college. They didn't allow us international students to have like, you know, man, like the proper bars, but you would do like the shitty beer and wine, bar, beer and wine bartending in college, like just serve mm-hmm. like little beers to like old ladies for $6 and like they couldn't, they couldn't tip us because we were not allowed to, but I would still get tips. Uh, but it's a very interesting mm. uh, way to meet lots of people and to be in a position yeah. where everyone's going to look upon you nicely because you're the one serving the liquor, right? Uh, so, you, so, you, <laughs> so you always have that sort of, uh, how do I say it? It's like you're the congenial person there, no matter what. And I don't know, like, were people assholes to you as a bartender? Did that happen? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. You have to understand, we were a bar that was open after everybody was already drunk. So they came there to get more drunk or continue yeah. flirting with the person they were flirting with. Right. Um, so it was know, an after party come in. Oh yeah. And people would, we were open till five in the morning and people would come in and they were already in the middle of their night. So, um, you know, I mean, yeah, most people, especially if they got to know us were super cool. However, you know, yeah, you always dealt with a jerk or two. Um, and you dealt with people who were self entitled, you know, you deal with that in the service industry all the time. And you know, you learn how to deal with it sometimes. I mean, I'm, not very good at that, um, which is why I didn't remain a bartender. I'm not, yeah. um, you know, the customer's always right. That's not my, 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 my vibe. Yeah. Uh, if you act like an asshole, I will tell you to fuck off. Um, I don't care. Especially when I was in my 20s, I was a lot more vitriolic that way. <laughs> you know, if you got in my way, I'd tell you to eat shit. Never had a problem with that. Uh, I had worked actually, before I went to France, I had worked in New York at a restaurant called El Teddy's. It's no longer there. It was down in Tribeca very yeah. near to uh, where the Tribeca Grand is uh, yeah. or the Tribeca Hotel. I forget what it's called. Like, you know, I haven't lived in New York in so long. Uh, but anyway, um, it was uh, between Franklin and White Streets on West Broadway. And uh, El Teddy's was this real, real interesting place because it, uh, it was such a weird place because it was like this art project inside. You know, it was this very flamboyant art project kind of restaurant, very cutting edge. Uh, all the waiters and bartenders were actors, directors, ballerinas, you know, all of us were trying to make it in the New York world. All the cooks were Mexican. So you had this very artistic place with all of these wannabe filmmakers, but the whole kitchen was Mexican and they served the most delicious Mexican food. It was unbelievably good gourmet Mexican food. And we had the best selection of tequilas in New York, but our clientele was actually all downtown Manhattan bankers. So it was this weird place. But the best thing about it was that we had these three managers. I forget their names except Ron. I remember Ron vividly. Ron was a former Marine or Army. But I think he was a Marine. He was this guy, tough guy, right? Thin, very handsome, middle-aged guy, you know, probably somewhere in 45, 50, uh, but homosexual, like flamboyantly gay. But he still had that Marine in him. And his whole thing was, if you fucked with his waiters, he'd kick you out of the restaurant. So what he used to do is he'd walk up to a table who was messing with his waiters and he would say, the customer is always right until he is wrong. Now leave. He, He used to tell me, Jeff, be a bitch. Be a bitch. It's okay. I got your back. Uh, cause I used to work on the terrace outside and he was like, Jeff, be a bitch. Um, so that worked really well for me. And that was something that I adapted in my, and it fit right in with my New Yorker go fuck yourself attitude, you know, my rebellious 22 year old self. So when I got to Paris and started bartending, if you were an asshole to me, I told you to fuck off and I didn't care. Um, and I still don't. That's kind of, uh, I'd say one of the only qualities about my life that's still true, which is um, I suffer fools very badly. Um, and I'm very unafraid to tell somebody that they're acting like a jerk. 
Yeah, I haven't seen that in the studio though. The the brief time. That no, I, um, I don't at the studio. I don't do that uh, because, um, you know, like I said at the outset of this, man, everybody at the studio is really serious and and they're really working hard. And you know, on the one hand, where I could be really rough on people if you act like an idiot, there's another side which is, I mean, look, if you're doing your work and you're busting your bum and you're trying your hardest, even if you fail, I don't care. I, I mean, I'm going to applaud that. For me, you know, I don't consider myself naturally very talented as a writer, director, or actor. Honestly, I don't um, at all, to be very honest with you. I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to see and work with like, real talent. I don't see myself as particularly naturally talented. What I think has always been my great equalizer is my hard work. Yeah. Um, everyone around me knows that I could be horribly lazy about everything else in my life. But about writing, directing, and acting, I will work nonstop. It's why all my hair is gray. And uh, I just respect that in people when I see that. When I see someone put their shoulder to the plow and bust their hump and work their ass off, I'm going to be right there and pull and push with them. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, Jeff, you know, you're not that critical. You don't tell people when they're doing poorly. And I always remind people, listen, I'm not comparing you with Brad Pitt. That's an unfair yeah. comparison. Mm -hmm. I'm comparing you against you. You know, who you were when you walked in the door of the studio or who you were when you began the class and who you are midway through it or at the end of it, that to me is the growth I'm interested in. If I held, you know, Brad Pitt or Al Pacino or Marlon Brando or, you know, Matthew Omohawk, the French actor, uh, or even Irfan Khan over people's heads, as the standard, then, I mean, then, then there's no point in teaching the craft because that's an unrealistic standard, right? That, that's not the standard, that's the exception. And of course we should work towards the exception, but you gotta first achieve the standard. And to achieve the standard, you gotta first learn your craft. And to learn your craft, you gotta work your tucha off, you know, your boom boom. And uh, yeah, so that's why you don't see that at the studio. Because as long as you're working hard, man, and as long as you're trying your best, I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader. That's, that's the way I've always been. Um, because I know that I've been really blessed in my life to have some wonderful cheerleaders along the way, and they elevated me. And now when, that I have the chance to be an educator, I want to do the same because I feel like it's just such an important responsibility. Yeah. Um, talking about encouragement, I think it's very important for people to have cheerleaders in general. I think... Um, I'm also equally blessed as you are to have many of those people in my life, including professors at BU, which I forgot to mention before when you were talking about um, uh, them, because it, it's something, it's something like, I feel like giving your attention to someone is, is absolutely generous and saying that I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you out, that sort of thing. And sometimes people need so little encouragement, like just a little push and, and then they're fine. Um, I, for once, remember that uh, when I walked into the doors of the studio, I was uh, surprised because I thought I was, con I, I consider myself to be pretty expressive. Uh, but then just seeing how all emotion was accepted, all kinds of expression were okay. And seeing, I guess your advanced class burst out of the doors. That's my first impression. Screaming, um, speaking very loudly. And my initial reaction was like, how, how did they get there? How, how, can, how, how can I also um, speak and express myself um, in a way that is away from shame and societal norms, judgment, that sort of thing. And that's, that's the thing that I also saw in the College of Fine Arts at BU when I, would, I was friends with many actors and I would just see how they would flutter about. Everyone can sing in their bathrooms, but to sing out in public and, and just really be with that, that's something only an actor can do. And it's, although with the fucking lockdown, it's, it's been quite challenging, but Ever since that happened and till the last day that we were in the studio, I could see some of that happening in me as well. Well, it will continue, bro. And I mean, you know, the thing is, I think, you know, and, and this is certainly something that our instructors constantly talk about. And our, I think our students and our participants do as well, you know, is, is that it's an unlearning process. It's a, it's, it's, it's yeah. a, you know, deconstructing process being an actor. But there's a wonderful quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't know it exactly, by Carl Jung, one of the early um, Love that behavioral guy. scientists. Yeah, Carl Jung, you know. 
psychoanalysts and Carly Ohm, Joseph Campbell. Uh, those are my favorites. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sigmund Freud, you know, part of that school, you know, one of the things that he said, and again, this is a paraphrase of a quote of his, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, isn't it interesting how people only learn till about 18 or 22 or 25, uh, their only, their education stops at that age, but there's so much more about life left to learn. And, uh, he's right. And I think that that's one of the things that's really unfortunate about our education system and just about our society at large is that somehow we think that once somebody achieves a certain degree, um, both literally and metaphorically of knowledge, they don't need to go further. And I I find that tragic, uh, absolutely tragic because learning is a lifelong process. Um, you know, one of the big things that I always tell people is, you know, it, it's funny, you know, you, you said to me, Jeff, you know, uh, you didn't say it this way, but, you know, you did it in, in a sort of roundabout way. You know, Jeff, uh, it's been a pretty interesting trip for you, you know, which is your life has been pretty interesting. I don't really see it that way, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, I guess when you sit down and you think about things like where I've lived and the things I've studied and the things I've done, maybe that's interesting. But I never did any of that because I was trying to be interesting. Um, I think the most important thing anybody could be uh, in themselves. I mean, what other people think of you is is, is what they're going to have an opinion about. Uh, but I think the thing that really needs to drive people is not being interesting, but being interested, being interested in things. What are you interested in? What are you passionate about? What do you want to learn about? Um, what are you waking up today and reading? What are you waking up today and watching? What are you waking up today and creating? What are you doing with your life that's nurturing those parts of yourself that sustain you, that, that, that create within you? Um, I think being interested is the most important quality any person at any stage, any age of their life can have. Uh, I, I'm a really big believer in that. Uh, and I think that that's so incredibly important. Of course, you know, um, the catch with that is that you become possessed by it. Um, Mm -hmm. and in being possessed by it, you know, you might, (laughs) it's not going to be great for the people around you sometimes because they're going to be like, shit, you know, Jeff's doing this or this one's doing that again. Uh, and it could be a bit lonely, but life, as far as I can tell, and this is not to be philosophical, but as far as I can tell, it's just kind of about making sure that you're interested in the things happening around you and you're engaged with them and you're actively pursuing them. And if by the time you get to the end of it all, someone says to you, wow, what an interesting life you've had, that's a compliment. But I don't know that that's necessarily a goal that you should aspire to. I've never aspired to be interesting, to be honest. Um, I've just always been interested in stuff. And it's led me to France. It led me to India. Uh, it's led me into different parts of my career, different relationships. And, and, I'm, and I'm internally grateful to, to my interest and my curiosity for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Joseph Campbell has this idea um, about the sacred hour. He's like, by the time you get to my age, and he's talking about a book, this um, interview with uh, Bill Moyers uh, mm-hmm. for a book called The Power of Myth. I don't know if you know about it. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he said that by the time you get to my age, uh, your life becomes a set of routines that you don't even question. And, and then they become obligations. And then when someone asks you to do something that is out of the norm, you, you'll say, uh, actually, I'm obliged to do the other thing, so I can't. And then he says, mm-hmm. that's when he devised this idea to create a sacred, a sacred hour for himself, where for an hour, he would just combine all of the things that he once, as a young man, felt a proclivity to do, something that his soul was naturally interested in. And he said that once he used that ritual, his life really started to turn around. Um, and for the longest time, I have felt um, that in my own life with people around me, especially people who are older, right? People even older than you, um, how the eyes sort of lose their shine, right? And, and, then, and then age sets in and, and psychological age sets in. And this idea that um, being old means being stable and unwilling to experiment with new experiences and closing yourself mm-hmm. off to the world and existing mm-hmm. in a small uh, fucking padding, padded cell of, of routines mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. 
really take you as far as survival. Your soul, mm. like, you don't even know what that thing is anymore. And it's, mm. and it's really uh, painful to see that uh, among so many people that I know in my life who I also love. Um, and I, I always try uh, to, to, to find that again and again in my own life, no matter what the consequence. Like I, I, uh, I write every single day, irrespective of whether someone's watching or not. And, and, and I, I asked myself one day, it's like, if I publish this, if I make money from this, would I stop doing it? I was like, no. If I make no money from this, would I stop doing it? No. And that's when I knew like I had something that, that I could always do that was only sacred to me that didn't have to be some sort of obligation, some sort of, uh, that didn't have to be something that had an end goal that people uh, could, you know, associate me with. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That, that was a bunch of things I was trying to make sense of. No, that, no, you, you made perfect, you make perfect sense of a man. And I think that, you know, um, your point about uh, age and psychological age is an interesting one. And your point about doing what is vocational as opposed to what is occupational is very important. Um, you know, and as somebody in my bartending days, certainly make a good story uh, and they're a decent yarn. Uh, and there are certainly some funny uh, instances and anecdotes that come from those days of my life. Yeah. But they were always occupations for me. They were always a means to an end, which was get a paycheck. Uh, and I really struggled. What were you doing in your downtime then? Uh, I've always found time to write. I've always found time to be creating. Because like you said, you know, that's just kind of in my DNA. Um, and what has been so uniquely wonderful about our studio is how it's become the convergence of three sides of myself that uh, I absolutely love. And they're all vocational. The first is creation which is creating theater and writing. And it's given me the time and the freedom and the tools to do that. Two is teaching. I love teaching. Um, I find that the very same parts of myself that I use to create art is also, are also the same parts of myself that I use to teach because, you know, teaching the craft of, of writing, directing and acting, you have to be inventive. You have to be that curiosity does not, uh, stop. And then finally, the third thing is, is that, you know, I get to surround myself with the energy of other artists, uh, particularly younger artists who have not had that cynicism or that, um, that jadedness. Yeah. The jadedness hasn't set in yet. And, and, and that's very refreshing. And I think that a lot of people in our industry over time lose touch with why they started it. You know, because the problem is, is that once you start to compromise and eventually we all have to make some degree of compromise uh, in our careers, because there's just no way that you're not going to be able to You either have to be that lucky or that talented to uh, have an uncompromised career. Even Stanley Kubrick, who's probably among the greatest three filmmakers ever, had to make compromise. Andrei Tarkovsky, Krzysztof Kozlowski, um, you know, Ingemar Bergman, these wonderful, incredible filmmakers, they've made compromises. Uh, Robert De Niro's done shitty films, uh, et cetera. But that distilled passion and fervent belief that something magical and that you can change the world with art exists in a place like our studio because people come in there with those very real hopes and it's so nurturing. It's so satisfying. It's a tonic and um, it's kept me mentally, physically, emotionally alive. And I'm so grateful to it. Um, it's an energy that is intoxicating. So having had those occupational jobs in my life uh, and having had now for the past six years, the vocational pleasure of being at our studio, I just, you know, I mean, look, man, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's a very important thing in our lives. And I think during this lockdown, as people retreat into themselves, they're starting to face and discover what it is that really speaks to them for them and through them. And I would just caution anyone. Hey, listen, man, you've touched something very unique in your life because you've had the opportunity to do that as you emerge from this, which we all will eventually don't lose that. Don't forget that either. You know, and I worry about that um, for people and, and myself because the occupational hazards and noises and distractions of life are going to come back on, you know, full blast louder than ever before. Um, and everyone's going to be chanting, let's get back to normal. And 
I don't think it's reasonable for us to think that the, that normal exists anymore, or the normal that was exists anymore. Um, you know, I was just saying this morning that we've been locked up for six weeks, six crazy. weeks. And I mean, you know, if someone came to you a year ago and said to you, Hey man, you were going to be locked in your house with your family for six to eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks, 12 weeks next year, you'd roll your eyes and be like, listen, buddy, whatever you're smoking, save me some for the next one, because I, I ain't going to happen. And, and, and you couldn't even hypothesize about what you would do at that time. Yeah. And here we all are, right in the middle of it. Uh, it's, it's a really, really unique thing. And I hope that people have used their time wisely. I'm sure they've wasted some of it. We're all <laughs> guilty of that. But I hope that people have spent a, some thought introspecting. That's a hope of yeah. mine, but I, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I will only say all of this in complete agreement because I, I, I saw the whole um, time when in the first couple of weeks I saw everyone in my life just, um, you know, just sink their time into consumption of content, mm -hmm. uh, wasting away. All of, and I was doing that myself. But I was telling this to my mother yesterday, uh, is that in times of crisis, um, what is essential to you becomes visible. And you'd be foolish enough not to see that. Um, because to think about it, um, I was staying in Mumbai. I heard about the lockdown three days before it actually happened by a friend who had some other influential friends. She told me, run away, go back home. It's safer there, blah, blah, blah. I was like, fuck it. Locked the apartment up, mm. came here. Um, Lost most of equipment, uh, but had some books here, some writing pads, a mic, um, and it just came down to uh, what I want to do. And it's just write, read, and, and speak, right? Um, and then also be with my family, interesting enough. And, and my dad, one of these days, he got a bit drunk, and he's like, so uh, he, he told my sister and I that you motherfuckers would never come home if it was not for this crisis. And I'm glad that you guys are home is at least this way we can be together and sure, you know, families are dysfunctional and all of that. And there's a bunch of shit that happens, but it's making everyone, and I don't want to speak for that humanity, but it's making everyone realize what is important, what is essential and how much fluff uh, had become normalized in our lives. And so I'm mm -hmm. also excited for what comes next, even if it's like, you know, 10 weeks from now, six weeks from now, two weeks from now, because I think some of us might just like the indoors a little bit better after this. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, you know, I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, and, and you lived in the United States for a long time and the United States and India, whilst they don't share a lot of things, uh, outwardly at least, they're both consumption economies, um, you know, uh, where say like China is a more manufacturing economy, India and the United States and Western Europe for the most part are consumption economies, which means people consume and the economy runs itself on this consumption and in running itself on this consumption, there is an entire industry or industries out there that advertise market and propagate the continued consumption of the society because that's yes. what spins the wheel right and what's really really fascinating is that we have all been forced to learn that we have that not only do we have to live with less we can live with less yes we don't like you very you like you very rightly said man you know so many things that had been normalized in and our lives have been revealed as fluff. We don't really fucking need them. Okay. And of course that first two, three weeks we were all going through that, like, fuck, I need this. Like, Oh shit. How am I going to get this? Amazon's not delivering kind of thing. Right. Um, but now this many weeks into it, it's like, well, you know what? I just kind of need, I don't know, food and the internet's cool. I like the internet. Books are cool. Um, you know, be cool if they open up the liquor stores. That'd be nice, uh, you know. Uh, but 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 it's fascinating how how um, you know the, the, the we 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 we've just all learned that we don't need all the shit we thought we needed, and 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 that's really cool. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, is everybody going to emerge from this more self-aware? And I don't know. You know, actually, my biggest fear right now. I'm talking about this with a few people around me is I think that, you know, the way people have dealt with this emotionally is very much like the stages of grief. You know, the first stage of grief is shock and awe and negotiation. And I think that was the first like two weeks, right? 
from like about the 15th of March to the end of March, everyone was dealing with like, what the fuck? Like, holy shit. You know, and then the first, yeah. the next two weeks, the first two weeks of April, everyone was like, this is going to be okay. We're going to be fine. We just have to sit at home. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when they announced the lockdown from the 14th to now May 4th, which is just two days from now, I think that's when everybody started like, whoa, this is getting weird, man. Like, and it started to really hit people on a much deeper level. And that's when people started to retreat into themselves. And that's when the depression started to set in. Now, I don't think people were depressed, but like people started to like really be like, whoa, you know, I can't watch Netflix every day, all day, can I? Um, and people started to want more from their, their experience. And what I'm a little bit worried about is now that they've announced the next two weeks, I mean, the frustration is going to start to set in yeah, and, and the anger is going to start to emerge. And I'm a little worried about that because, you know, if you look at even like, you know, the protests that are starting to emerge all over the world, there are really and truly, I mean, I don't think protesting the lockdown is a good idea because of course the health reasons, but yeah. I can relate to the frustration in some of these people, you know, I mean, you know, and, and, and the financial Armageddon that many people are going through, you know, I mean, and again, can you imagine what, 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 what somebody who's a day laborer or a daily wage earner is going through? That's got to be really, really tough. Uh, and uh, that frustration and anger is a normal reaction to this. And I think we might start to see some of it um, emerge. And that's the only thing that over the next two weeks I'm really nervous about is just can the social collective cohesion Will it buckle or will it not? And how much will it buckle or, or boil? So that, that's, that's, that's a bit of a fear of mine. Uh, yeah. But just me. That's just me. You know, I, mean, no, I, could be I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely because I um, mm. tell you about this incident that happened. I was in, so I'm in Faridabad. It's, it's a city right next to New Delhi um, where my parents mm-hmm. live. And um, I ventured out into the markets about uh, one and a half weeks ago. I keep going out every now and then to get stuff. But um, mm-hmm. there was... Uh, a very visible line of tension in the air. Yeah, I could see it. Mm-hmm. See people muttering curses under their breath. Mm-hmm. I could see people mm-hmm. getting jumpy. I myself got afflicted with that because I could see. In fact, you know what? Something very interesting that happened is I was trying to get inside this uh, convenience store, and the security guard didn't let me. He said, um, "Back away," and uh, he did it twice, and. I don't know, maybe it was because I wanted to, you know, fucking just like go inside and like tell him how dare he do that, right? All that thing that that animal behavior just building up, right? Because that mm-hmm. never happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I could see in his eyes uh, this sense of, uh, he knew this was temporary, but the sense of I have become more empowered now because I'm the gatekeeper to this, right? And it, it was almost like weirdly enough in my head, like like that Stanford prison experiment. I don't know if you know about that, where... Um, yeah, this researcher, he, he got a couple of students to become prison guards and a couple of them to become prisoners. The prisoners learned learned helplessness and the prisoner prison guards became torturers, uh, aggressors, tyrants, that sort of thing. So I could see that little thin line, right? And as I went inside the convenience store, I could see it in the cashiers as well. Like they were like, they were like furious, but they were all containing it so well. Passive, aggressive uh, emotions were in the air. Uh, people were stepping on each other. And I, I, when I came back inside my car, I was like, yeah, just do. I, um, I, I spoke rudely to a bunch of people myself. Uh, and I was like, why is this happening? I was like, oh, everyone is feeling it. It's just not me. But, but it, it, it's one of those moments where you obviously know about Carl Jung. I thought I knew my shadow pretty well. And it's like in times like these, um, you know, your dark side emerges like where, where you have murderous thoughts. You're like, fuck this guy. Fuck that guy. I'm going to get my thing first. Right. That sort of thing. Um, and, and, and I think we're also, uh, in this lockdown, a lot of what you talked about self-awareness, we're also seeing our dark sides that we're all not as good mm-hmm. sons, brothers, daughters, sisters, you know, mothers, fathers, as we thought we are right. There's, there's a very, um, animal repressed side in us that we haven't explored before. And, mm-hmm. you know, and since there's unrest that comes out in the public, I don't know. Did, did you experience something like that? Or is it like very congenial? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, bro, I, I think, I think you're speaking to a lot of very, very um, important things. And I think that you're 
perception and observations are really spot on. Um, you know, people, we as a society, as a global society, and, and of course I'm gonna speak in general terms here, and these are huge mm -hmm. brushstrokes, and they're not universally true. Um, there are parts of this world that continue to deal with uh, strife and the anxiety of day-to-day -day life and normalcy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like a place like Somalia, you know, that hasn't had yeah. really a functioning government yeah, in 20 so, some, yeah, 30 yeah. some odd years, you know, and um, parts of the world, uh, even parts of the world that look settled, you know, say in the United States or Western Europe, where you have people who are transient or who are migrant workers or Syria, you know. So to sit there and say that the world universally is at peace is false. Yes. But since the Second World War, we have not had a global conflict that has really made everybody on earth confront their mortality, confront their stability, and confront their normalcy. Now, of course, there, there have been pockets of that, the Vietnam War, the Afghan War against the yep. Soviets, and, and many in the Iraq Wars. I mean, there's ten, tons of examples that would um, tear that argument down, but they were localized. This not suggest that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were killed, displaced, etc. Um, you know, of course, you had genocides in Rwanda and things of that nature. But as a global phenomenon where the whole world actually was confronted with questions of normalcy, stability, safety, and mortality, um, that hasn't happened in, in a long time. And we've become, thank you, Roger Waters, comfortably numb. And uh, particularly the middle classes, yeah. the middle classes of all societies which is an outgrowth of, you know, Keynesian economics, Brent Woods and all of that, has allowed us to become comfortably numb, which has been a great thing. But those underlying reptilian medulla parts of our brain and our being and our species, they're there. They've always been there. Yeah. But we have appealed so much to the frontal lobe and the consumption yes. that as we retreat into ourselves, it's literally almost like a geographical retreat. And yeah, we are just one or two steps ahead of our primate cousins. And look, you know, I remember the other day, my son heard something that horrified him because he loves dogs. My, my son loves doggies. And yeah. he heard that your dog, if you die in the house and you're all alone, will eat you up. Get out. Well, yeah, he'll, he'll take a bite. He's hungry. Um, and that horrified him, as it should have, little boy. Um, but we're not that far ahead. We're not. And, 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 and we're now dealing with that. That shit is real. And um, look, if the food supply chain breaks or cracks, if people really suffer, that's gonna, that energy will manifest itself. And I shouldn't say if people really suffer, people are really suffering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the migrant workers of India, the marginalized people all throughout the world are suffering for real. That's not fake. And this upsurge of political protests and bullshit you see at the United States, the Capitol building, the guys with guns and all that, fuck that. What's really gonna happen is that there is going to be an emotional crisis and collapse on the part of most people because all the things we held to be true and solid and static mm -hmm. are as ephemeral and transient as everything else. And when people start to realize that the set pieces in their lives are actually made of clouds that scares them and that's that fear that fear is malleable and it could easily be ignited into a horrible storm and you know unfortunately politically we don't seem to have any rational voices in the room we yeah. seem to be stuck with a bunch of people who are much more comfortable blaming others much more comfortable pointing fingers and much more comfortable playing you know the victim card than leadership. And yeah. that's, 
you know, this is a scary, scary time politically, socially, economically, and emotionally. And I think everybody, you know, politically, everyone recognizes that we're on very, 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 very skittish terms with our government. Economically, I think everybody understands we are a deep shit. Yeah. Socially, I think that there are enough really smart people thinking out loud about what this yeah. means for society at large. Mm-hmm. Their voices may not be as readily available to us, but they're there. But is anyone thinking about the emotional cost of all of this? And that, because the emotional cost is what's going to drive the economics, the political and the social Correct. choices we make next. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, we think of political beliefs as hardened and fast. They're concrete. They're set in stone. But beliefs are just emotions. That's all they are. They're just it's a set of emotions, right? So our belief in capitalism, our belief in communism, socialism, bartering, slavery, feudalism, whatever the fuck you believe in, okay? Our beliefs in, in right-wing zealotry or left-wing, you know, demagoguery or what's in the middle, whatever the fuck that is, or our belief that society is top to bottom, bottom to top, sharing, caring, whatever you believe, they're just fucking emotions, And what has rocked us here is something that your generation shouldn't be dealing with. My generation, not so much either, but certainly not yours. This fucking thing can kill you. That's not a joke. This COVID thing that's out there that you can't fucking see can actually kill you. And everybody is confronting, I'm going to die. Not in that like, yeah, we're all going to die bullshit way. Like in a very real way, we're confronted mortality. All of humanity at one moment has paused and realized, shit, we're all gonna die. And people are gonna bug out over that. Okay, now the old, who are the ones that are really suffering the worst, they've arrived at that magical hour of Joseph Campbell's. They've had enough life that they're not, I mean, they don't wanna die. My mother doesn't wanna die, but she, the thought has occurred to her, right? Right. 25 year old kids don't think about that. There's less left to lose for them. Exactly. But 25-year-old kids don't think about that. You don't think about death. You think about what you're going to be doing next year, who you're going to be doing next year, where you'll be doing it. All right. Um, So this collective mortality moment, fuck, man, fuck. And like, dude, you're going to see such an uptick in everything in the next couple of years. You're going to see an uptick in marriages. You're going to see an uptick in divorces. You're going to see an uptick in babies being born. I've already heard a cute term for them. They're called the coronials. Nice name. Um, Okay. Uh, You know, you're going to see an uptick in people quitting their jobs to go become artists or hippies. You're going to see an uptick in people getting jobs because they don't want to be hippies anymore. You're going to see an uptick in people moving home. You're going to see an uptick in people selling their homes. You're going to see an uptick in people becoming more religious. And you're going to see people running from religion. You're going to see people, you're going to see people who become abstinent in alcohol, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you're going to see people who become debaucherous when it comes to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Because this, as we emerge from the lockdown, we will exhale. And that uncoiling of the anxiety, we're just going to be like, if I lose my job, fuck it. Can't be worse than sitting at home for eight weeks. You know, if I break up with my wife, fuck it. Can't be worse than sitting at home with that crazy woman for eight weeks. If I get fucking high and stoned, fuck it, right? Who, I mean, it's not worse than sitting at home for eight weeks, right? What's it all for, right? We're yeah. all going to have that. And some people, some people are going to need answers, and they're going to go to God. They're going to go to their political beliefs. They're going to go to their you know, national identities for those. Cultural heroes. They're going to go to their – right. And then there are going to be others who are going to be like, peace, man, I'm out. Yeah. And we're going to see this amazing divide. But the question that I think is really unanswered, and we need to start it now. People say, you know, the health matters now, the politics matters. No, what really matters now is who are we going to be emotionally when we emerge from this, right? Because when you're a granddad, your grandkid will ask you this question. Where were you during the great pause, grandpa? What were you doing during the Great Pause? Yeah. What were you doing during the Great Pause? Who'd you spend the Great Pause with, Grandpa? Tell me a story about the Great Pause. What was the Great Pause like, Grandpa? Ray's gonna come home from school and ask you that question. 
And, 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 and we know that that question is going to be asked. But are we asking ourselves that question during the great pause? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I think we should. I think we should. Yeah. Man. That's just my own very humble opinion. That, that was a, I, I will just cut this entire piece out and then put it up on social media uh, for promoting oh. this podcast because this is brilliant. Go no, right ahead, bro. Thanks, bro. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, you're spot on with so many things. I, I think this is going to be a time, and I hate to be one of those political pundits and like speculating, this is going to be that time, mm. but, but it's going to be a time. It is a time of making absolute choices. Uh, it's a time where we're, we're living out the genre of bucket list movies, right? The whole idea, the mm. premise, something mm. like this. Oh, now you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So fucking do whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one where the, what is it, Jack Nicholson and... Uh, yeah, Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, it's, I think it's, it's playing out oh, that, right that, now. No, that's the, the, you're talking about Morgan Friedman. Yeah, it is, man. It, it totally is. But I think that, you know, like I said, you know, um, I wrote this, uh, you know, I, I write a variety of different stuff and I wrote this one passage and, you know, the question is, who are you or who were you when death walked among us? Like, who were you in this time? Right? Because this is probably the most you you'll ever be. Because you're going to get back out there and get stuck in traffic, both literal and emotional and metaphorical traffic. Mm-hmm. And once the, once the doors open, there's going to be even more traffic, more noise, more drum beating. So my question is, who were you when death walked among us, right? And what makes this virus so fascinating is you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it. It doesn't care if you're black, you're brown, you're white, you're blue, you're green, you're yellow, you're orange, you're a fucking apple. It doesn't care if you pray to God, you don't pray to God, which God you pray to, which religion you believe, boy, girl, it doesn't care. What it, it's an invisible democratic death <laughs> element, right? And look at how pathetic, look at how pathetic our leaders and our media have become because they want to blame someone. You know, was it a Chinese lab? Was it a, a pangolin in a wet market? Was it one yeah. prayer meeting of a particular... Who fucking cares? Is that really who you are? Are you so desperate to shift the blame? Yeah. I mean, you know, and people say, oh, you know, but it's because the East Asian, they want to eat these weird animals. Yeah, but come on, man. Like, fuck that, dude. Like, we all buy into this shit. You know, and this, 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 this celebration of our differences, which are so marginal, is so pathetic. It's so sad that we're using 99.9% of our DNA and chromosomes are the same across humanity, right? right? So we're using 0.1% to differentiate ourselves at the most absolutely inopportune time to do that. Because this is not an Indian issue, a French issue, an American issue, or an African issue, or a, you know, Middle Eastern issue or a Russian issue or Western European issue or an East. This is not a national or geographical issue. This is not a white, black, brown, yellow issue. This isn't a Jew, Christian, Catholic, Muslim issue. This is a human issue. Humanity. Where the fuck is that word in this conversation? Humanity. This thing is attack humanity. And everyone's talking about, and it's like, really? That's the best you can come up with at this moment where humanity is under attack. So if there really are aliens observing us, they must be thinking to themselves, humans are worse than we thought they were. Because at a moment when they need each other the most is when they're abandoning them each other their fastest. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I, I was I was speaking to a professor and he was doing an email correspondence with him, and he was saying that I was asking him if, if he could if they could also have a lockdown like the, we have here in India. He's like, we would definitely benefit from it, but we don't have the same sort of direction that 
you guys have because our president gives us, you know, false answers, false hopes, blames everyone, only cares about his status and wealth. And he says, there's too many independent factions uh, in the U.S. right now that uh, say again, to paraphrase what you said, China did it or Bill Gates did it or it's like something else. Um, and, and there isn't a sense maker in all of this. And I think it's very important right now for individual human beings, heads of families to make sense of this for everyone else who can't. Right? And political leaders do the same thing. Um, but some of them are, some of them aren't. It's a weird time. And one thing that I find fascinating about what you said about humanity is that I find that this is one of those times where human beings should mimic their movies. Think about all the movies where the protagonist has to see humanity itself, where, 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 where the, the stakes are the end of the earth. Like literally, the earth will blow itself up, a specific country will be wiped off the map, something else, if you don't do it, right? And we all watch those movies, and at the end, we're like, you feel this weird sort of unity, this sort of inspiration, maybe movies like 2012, uh, there's a bunch of those, right? And when it comes back to actually doing it in real lives, something about wanting to make sure that my family is fine, I don't care about the world, that always comes in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think that, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, I've got to go catch up with my kid in two minutes. Uh, so it's yeah. all about family for me. Uh, but but um, all I'd say is this, brother, is, is that, you know, we as a society, and I'm not speaking about Indian or American societies. I'm speaking about human society. Mm -hmm. We have been handed a real conundrum. And that conundrum is there is a silent death walking among us, lurking everywhere. Right. And whilst in a very existential way we, and philosophical way we've been aware of that, we actually now feel the presence of it. And death, as embodied by Ingemar Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, you know, with his sheath, is walking among us. We can see him, and we're playing chess with him. Uh, and much like Max von Sydow, the actor in the film who just died, the late, great Max von Sydow, um, we are really and truly at the table of this game. And we haven't even moved the first piece as a, as, as, as a global society because we're so busy fighting within ourselves about the most inane shit. And that is so sad, so pathetic. And me always being the optimist and hopeful person I am, I really do believe that out of this, we will emerge because there will be a voice of reason who articulates that for us. I think there's going to be a lot of voices of reasons that articulates that for us. Because one thing is, is that if you look at sort of the, the, the tragedy that was the First World War, very quickly after the First World War, Western Europe was seized by a group of populist fascist dictators who then used the fear and pain that the global society experienced in the war and took that shock and awe and molded that into what were the seeds and eventual actions of the Second World War. Luckily for us, the tyrants and the right-wing fascists are in power right now. They're in power right now, all over the world. And because they have done such a pathetic job of protecting us, we can see them for who they are. The emperor is not wearing any clothes. We can see them for who they are. And because we can see them for who they are, I think, I hope in my heart of hearts, we will make a better choice. And I think that, that really and truly, and this is not to tether it back to my home country and the place you spent many years, but I think that starts in November 2020. If the United States shows the world that it can elect a leader, Joe Biden is very much an imperfect candidate and not my choice, but yeah. he is infinitely better than what we currently have. Um, if the United States can show the world that we can choose something a little bit different than a tyrannical, fascist, selfish, narcissistic, mercurial fool, then I think that other countries will take a page from that. And, you know, look, I know that people get very, very hot and bothered and they want to troll someone that says something negative. But 
look, this is what I would say to you people before you start trolling me and you know, all I'm going to ask you is this. Are you really happy? Are you truly happy? And has your life, the quality of it, financially, emotionally, and really improved? Have these people who tell you you're advancing, have they really made your life better? And if the answer is yes, then please, this is a democracy. Vote for whom you believe in. Absolutely. But at the same time, don't just follow someone because they're a snake oil salesman, right? You know, you don't want to become addicted to snake oil because then you're going to start seeing double, triple, and quadruple vision. And in my view, I really think that hopefully we will see a real shift politically, economically, socially, and eventually emotionally in the next year or two. I really believe that in my heart of hearts. Um, and I genuinely hope that the lessons of history and the lessons of rationality prevail. But, you know, all I'm going to do once the doors of this open is I'm going to go back to work teaching young folks how to act and making beautiful art as best I can. That's what I'm going to do because that's who I am. Thank you, Jeff. It's, it's, uh, it's been a blast having you on, man. I, I really appreciate it. Rock and roll, bro. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. great, bro. Big, big hug. I'll see you real soon. Give my love to the family and I'll talk to you soon, champ. Okay. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Take care. T Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.